Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Hey, good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Director of Cybersecurity Advisory Services here at Cyber Theory. Today's episode will explore the current state of quantum computing and see if we can't separate the hype from the reality. With me to explore the topic is Peter Bordeaux, the Senior Vice President and Principal Architect and Head of Quantum Systems and Emerging Technology for Information and Cybersecurity at Wells Fargo Bank. Anything that Peter tells us today is his opinion, and it's not the opinion or official position of Wells Fargo Bank. And before Wells, Peter spent 20 years in and around the information technology and cybersecurity business, and also managed to compose and play blues, which earned him a Golden Music Award Blues Artist of the Year back in 2000. Peter uh, studied film scoring, arranging, and composition at the Berkeley College of Music, which may or may not have led to his interest in quantum. It seemed like that worked pretty well for some guys named Heisenberg, Einstein, and Planck, but far be it for me to know that. So welcome, Peter. I'm glad you could join us today. Thanks, Steve. It's uh, my pleasure and honor to be here with you. Well, thank you. So let's talk about quantum, particularly the Harvest Now, Decrypt Later idea. Harvest Now, Decrypt Later is kind of a pressing concern at the moment. I We've got criminals and bad guys in nation states stealing personal data and company IP, knowing that future quantum computers will be able to decrypt any of that encrypted content. Business is already being urged to switch to some form of quantum-proof security for data transmissions. I don't know what that would be, but maybe you'll help shed some light on that. How are we dealing with this, and what do you, when do you think the capability will exist? Well, a couple of really big questions. So yeah, Harvest Now, Decrypt Later is an emerging hot topic in many industries, especially financial industry, right? And I think you phrased it pretty well. So while quantum computing platforms today are not cryptographically relevant per se, but we know they will be, that doesn't stop bad actor states or nation states from actively capturing encrypted data today. That's data in motion mainly, right? Through rerouting of internet traffic and so on with the anticipation, knowing that they will one day be able to decrypt that information. And so a lot of this really is around shelf life of data value, right? And so in the financial industry, there's a, a, a long runway, if you will, of data shelf life in some circumstances. Things like mortgage information and so on can be relevant for you know as many as 30 years. And then things like personal information, like your name and address, phone number, ethnicity, and so on, those things are, are timeless, right? They're, they're valuable in perpetuity. So there really is a lot of concern today about what to do about that. And so there's a number of different strategies that entities are taking today to help protect and safeguard against that eventuality. And so I'm, I'm sure you're aware that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, in, in Colorado, has been working over the last few years on testing and validating a number of cryptographic algorithms that are quantum resistant. Now, we, we don't say quantum proof in the field, right? Because there's no such thing as anything proof in security. But um, mathematically, we've shown that these new algorithms are very resistant 
to the known landscape of quantum attacks, right? And so in the world of what we know will be a threat, there are some steps that organizations can take today to uh, make more robust their current encryption and public key infrastructure. The real concern is what we don't know that we don't know, right? In the world of quantum algorithms, we know that there's a set of really good algorithms out there for breaking asymmetric encryption. But what we don't know is what hasn't been developed yet, right? If you look at the landscape of algorithms on classical platforms, there's tens of thousands of algorithms out there, right? Every flavor and variety. But in the quantum world, there's really only a handful of well-established algorithms that are available today. And so there's, there's an enormous ecosystem of algorithmic solutions on quantum machines that have just not been developed. And so, yeah, we're, we're always concerned about what we don't know that we don't know quite yet. In terms of quantum computing hype versus reality, what is your assessment of the current state of our quantum programs here in the United States? And how far ahead do you think China is? And what's the global impact when China gets there first? Yeah, great questions. Well, just for a little context, so IBM, one of the most well-known developers of quantum computing platforms, has had a cloud-based solution available for seven years now, I believe. And there's been a lot of iterations, right? They've gone from a handful of qubits, the quantum equivalent of a digital bit, right? They've gone from a handful of those up to um, now they've announced over uh, 100. I think it's 127 is the latest platform with plans or designs on releasing a 1,000-qubit machine here in the next 12 months or so, according to their public roadmaps. But, you know, the reality is, is that these quantum platforms are just not ready for prime time quite yet. And it, it almost sounds like a broken record when you say anytime now, anytime now. But really, it, it kind of is anytime now. In terms of what that date will be when quantum platforms become, let's say, quote unquote, production ready, I think you'll get a pretty good variety of answers. And we like to say when you, when you ask an engineer or an architect a question, you'll get at least two or three different answers. You know, my personal opinion, after looking at the landscape over the last seven years, knowing and experiencing 30 years of IT development in hardware systems, I'm going to say a good bet is about five to eight years before some production-ready platforms are available, right? And there's a lot to that. But I think it depends on the use case. Now, if you're trying to crack or factor prime numbers for a, a cryptographic algorithm, that's one thing. But if you're trying to do uh, chemical simulations or if you're doing optimized search operations, or even if you're doing, say, anomaly detection, or potentially applying for privacy enhancing technologies, that landscape might be quite a bit shorter, right? It all depends on the number of usable qubits that you need to perform any particular use case. So it's not an easy answer, but I would say that it's, it's an exciting time, and we've all got our eye on the short-term horizon for these developments Next year, 1,000 qubit machines will be becoming quite common. And so who knows? The year after that, it might be 10,000 qubit machines and then 100,000 qubit machines. And then we get into some really exciting space. In terms of bad actors, bad actor nations and so on. So uh, as you can imagine, it is difficult to get a thorough and accurate assessment of the state of the art of, let's say, the, the 
Chinese efforts to develop quantum platforms, right? As a closed society, we don't have good visibility into reality. So all we know really is from headlines and press releases and so on, which would indicate that they are on par with the rest of the quantum technology community in quantum communications, quantum security, quantum computing. But again, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So um, we're always have a heightened sense of awareness and alert for signs that would indicate that there's great advancements um, on that other side, right? In terms of the threat, though, you know, we like to think that any productive developments in the quantum technology community would benefit the whole community. There is a real profound sense of information sharing, of collaboration, and that's even across international lines. And so the community is very robust in their cooperation, in exchanging information and publishing papers and so on. And so, you know, I think what's the old expression? We may not all be in the same boat, but we're all rising to the same tide, right? So I think there's a lot of incentive for international communities to continue working together. And hopefully, you know, this will all shake out in the next five to 10 years and we'll all be one happy global community in the tech industry. Well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm, I'll, I'll buy that. In terms of algorithms and the quantum mechanics principles, there, there seems to be two camps in quantum, right? The first is the hardware-based approach, the QKD, quantum key distribution, which I think uses fundamental quantum uh, mechanic principles to facilitate secure communication. The second is a software approach, post-quantum cryptography. Yes based on algorithms that, unlike RSA, are not based upon factoring a large semi-prime number. In the future, large primes will be breakable by high-performance quantum computers. Which, which is the preferred approach, in your opinion, or will we sort of continue to use both? Yeah, so personally, I think we'll be best served by the multi-layer model that we often use in information security. I think there, there are advantages to the algorithmic approach or the software approach of more robust algorithms and key lengths and so on. But I don't think that's the silver bullet, right? I think, again, this goes back to what we don't know that we don't know yet, right? So there's a lot of mathematical theory and proofs around what is the magic number for key length or what is the magic formula for developing asymmetric encryption. But, you know, that's a moving target. And I think while it's logistically easier to implement these algorithmic and software-based solutions in the existing infrastructure and in, in enterprises, I think long-term, we're looking at a layered approach. I think software-based robust security solutions will always be part of the solution, but I think quantum mechanical solutions will put the icing on the cake, if you will, right? I think that's going to be your more secure blast radius, reducing attack vectors significantly. If we can perfect quantum key distribution, and there are a couple different flavors of that too, right? Like there are some mildly complex schemes where you're transmitting photons across a fiber optic cable and then photon loss, which is caused by Eve in the man in the middle attacks, uh, are calculated and detected. These are very well understood protocols and easily implementable. And there are some off the shelf products today that you can buy and put into use. 
I think more exotic solutions where you've got entanglement-based authentication methods are still being developed, but I think they're going to be, again, a, a key aspect of the overall ecosystem. And I think eventually we're going to end up in a sort of a hybrid environment from mobile devices to desktop devices to data center applications, I think, and especially with satellite communications as well. I think we're going to see a multi-layered, multifaceted approach. It's hard for me to imagine all of this going on at the satellite communication level. <laughs> Isn't that instability that you just referred to part of the barrier to figuring out how to get this stuff to work? Yeah, you know, like any technology, there are early days, there are maturity days, and then there's production days. And, you know, if you, if you scan the headlines, you'll see that there have been quite a few press releases and announcements about successful ground-to-satellite-based QKD implementations. To the best of my knowledge, none of these are in, quote-unquote, production today. But, you know, there, there's a really large community hard at work here, right? And that's government research, academic research, private industry research, and in many cases, partnerships among those entities that are working very, very hard to make that a, a reality. And I think, uh, I think we're not too far away. My personal opinion is I think we're, we're probably two to three years away from a production QKD system that leverages satellite communications. Huh. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Keep in mind that, that quantum key distribution is, as the name suggests, a security layer for exchanging keys, right? The keys are still vulnerable. And so there's always going to be attack vectors that you haven't considered. I mean, that's kind of like one of the organic rules of nature, right? Yeah, um, sure. So it's not, again, it's not the panacea. It's not the silver bullet. It's not the end-all, be-all solution. I think, I think there's a long road to hoe here. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Talk to me about that, the whole privacy-enhancing technology business, that pet, pet stuff, the wrap that we see huge adoption in digital services that depend on data. And it kind of underscores the importance of, you know, new technical approaches to preserving privacy and, you know, confidentiality with policy evolution. Can you help our audience understand what a pet is and how it can be helpful in that regard? Sure. So privacy enhancing technologies are sort of an umbrella term that relate to a family of privacy enhancing technologies as the name would apply. So we're talking about things like homomorphic encryption, where you can perform mathematical operations on encrypted data without having to decrypt them. So this is an interesting field, a lot of mathematics involved behind all of this, and just a little bit out of my specialty area. There is Differential privacy, where data sets are obfuscated by removing any data elements that would give an attacker the ability to reverse engineer a whole data set. So in other words, if we take customer profiles and we apply differential privacy to that data set, no one would be able to use any of the obfuscated fields to be able to determine what the real data elements are. Now, it's a, it's a much deeper conversation that we can do in 30 minutes, but in a lot of these schemes, there are key mathematical 
principles that rely on randomness, entropy, if you will. And so in the information security profession and in the field, we have for a long time relied mainly on what we call pseudo-random number generation, which is pretty good, right? I mean, we can generate randomness with what has been sort of an acceptable level of, of entropy. But quantum computing platforms give us the ability to generate true randomness, true entropy, where there's no noise or interference within the system that can be used to reverse engineer or facilitate better brute force attacks against random numbers, determining random seeds and so on. And so I think there's going to be some interesting research, and there probably is today. There's some papers out there that you can search on archive and so on that talk about the application of true quantum entropy to these privacy-enhancing technologies to make them even more secure. And especially when you consider things like multi-party computing, confidential computing, and a number of the other approaches, it's a very, very interesting convergence of the two fields together. It seems to me, and I, I don't, my understanding of quantum is kind of paper thin, but it looks like the and the environmental issues are are going to be difficult challenges, right? I mean, the whole entanglement business is, or you know, however you want to consider that uh, instability of these of the systems, kind of a big problem that hasn't been solved yet. Can you? Give us an update on kind of where that's at from an entanglement point of view. Yeah. So when we talk about system stability or qubit stability and decoherence times and things, it's really important to note that different modalities, different hardware or engineering approaches to qubits have different performance characteristics. So the the most popular one, I would say, or the most well-known one, is what we call superconducting qubits, right? And that's uh, the basis for IBM's machine. It's the basis for Google's machine and for Rigetti's machine and so on. Very common, right? And so there are very short coherence times, which is, without getting too technical, it, coherence times is essentially the window that you have to perform whatever operation you want to perform on the quantum platform. And those times are very, very short right now in that platform, on those platforms. But there's a lot of very interesting work being done in photonics. So using photons as qubits, as opposed to electrons, or even in cold atom technology. There are a couple of companies out there that super cool individual atoms using lasers, and they can get much better coherence times. Now there's often trade-offs, right? So there's gate fidelity, there's coherence, there's a lot of different parameters associated with the overall usability or efficiency or stability of a qubit. And so there's often trade-offs. And so while your entanglement times are a bit longer, perhaps your noise or interference coefficients are higher or vice versa, right? And I think there's no clear declared winner yet in this space, but there's certainly the equivalent of an arms race, which makes it very interesting actually. Every few weeks, if you keep a close eye out, you'll see announcements in things like extending coherence times or even software and hardware-based error correction on qubits as well. And so, yeah, it's real hard at this point to, to determine a front runner or even a potential winner in this space. 
But yeah, they are working hard on addressing the problem. Yeah, uh, but until that gets solved, you there's not we won't be able to have a practical quantum-based solution of a computer essentially, right? That we can use for anything and with reliability. Yeah. So again, you know, it's a real hard question to answer because there's so many variables. So it's like standing in a control room, tweaking different knobs, right? What's your circuit depth for your algorithm? How efficient is your algorithm? How many qubits do you need to perform your operation? And then how long do you need the stability of those qubits to survive to complete the various sequential operations? And then how long is the circuit setup time and so on? And so if you can make your algorithms more efficient, that's one approach. If you can make the hardware platforms more stable, that's another approach. And so by twisting these knobs and moving these levers, there will eventually be a sweet spot where we can be more productive in the intersection of engineering and software. So is IBM kind of leading in your estimation, kind of leading the the way in that regard today? That's a really hard question to answer. If you ask IBM, they'll say yes. If you ask Regetti, they'll say no. And if you ask D-Wave or other platform developers, they'll say no, right? It, it all depends on the eye of the beholder and where you're standing and really what, what your use case applications are. Didn't they do the breakthrough, though, in terms of that decrypting or the, the ability to manipulate encrypted data, the homomorphic? Homomorphic encry- encryption? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, separate from the quantum platforms, IBM has been uh, an effective pioneer in fully homomorphic encryption. Well, look, we don't want to mischaracterize this. That's still a field that has a long way to go. So there are a lot of restrictions on what operations you can perform on this encrypted data. Very simple uh, arithmetic functions today. But IBM has been one of the leaders in that space. You can just look at the headlines and look at the papers that they've published. But it, there's, there's a really long way to go mm-hmm. in that area. IBM, I would say, look, before, before I got involved professionally in the quantum technology space, I was a hobbyist, right? And so IBM was one of the very, very first folks to put out a publicly accessible platform where Joe Beercan could create an account log in and go through some fundamental tutorials on what a qubit is, how to manipulate the fundamental logic gates on their platform, and then begin to actually write some real fundamental algorithms. I mean, they were doing that like five years ago or maybe even longer, right? And so, you know, it's not always the first to market that will be the eventual leader, right? But it is the first to market that typically gets all of the notoriety, the hype, the reputation, and rides that momentum to help motivate the rest of the industry, right? IBM has done a lot of things, and they've done a lot of things very well, and they've done a lot of things that not so well, right? But they've always been at the forefront. So you have to give credit where credit is due, that's for sure. Yeah. And to give us a little bit of context, when we talk about slowing these these functions down, what are you talking about in terms of timings, for example, on uh, you know, what, whatever, whatever you're using, atoms or, or photons, for example, if you're going to you know, slow, slow that down, what, do you, what, do, what are we talking about in terms of 
slowing it down to what? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm, I'm not going to try and rely on my aging memory here for exact values here, but I can tell you that there's, there's orders of magnitude and difference between say the coherence time on a superconducting platform just, and this may be off base. So big disclaimer here, right? But I think we're talking a handful of microseconds, I think somewhere 10 to 15 microseconds. And I'm sure there's going to be listeners that are already Googling, checking my, my numbers here, right? So uh, don't rely on what I say. Go ahead and Google this. But on other platforms like photonic platforms or cold atom technology, you can get a, a 10 or greater fold increase in coherence times, which is enough to run you know, a handful of operations. I mean, you can't you can't run a thousand lines of code like you can on a, a traditional machine, but we're getting there little by little. Yet you're still talking about a thousand fold increase in in the overall speed of operations, right? Yeah. 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 It's pretty amazing, really. It's pretty amazing what we're doing there, actually. It, it's very uh, Star Wars-like uh, stuff. So, you know, good for you. I'm glad, you know, it's, you must uh, it must be a uh, fun job up there at Wells. So, oh man, I have the coolest job in the world, and I work yeah. with the coolest people in the world. I, I oh. am so privileged <laughs> to work with the folks that I do at Wells and in this industry. Look, I, you know, I've been around the block for a long time, and the level of collaboration and cooperation in this industry is really staggering. It's it's a lot of fun, and I'm super pri- privileged to be here. I wish that were more true on the cybersecurity side of the fence as well, but we have a ways to go in that regard for whatever reason there. I think there's <laughs> there's some personality and ego involved, but whatever. So do you still, my final question is uh, is back to blues guitar. Are you still, uh, do you still play and record or is that a thing of the past? Well, I've taken a bit of a hiatus. Work has been pretty time consuming the last couple of years. I have been working on my next album release, which uh, is the working title is Net Profit. And that's P-R-O-P-H-E-T, right? It's a play on words, obviously. I've got like a third of the album down. As you may or may not know, I get paid not to sing. So part of the challenge is finding really (laughs) good vocalists to match my aggressive, if not brutal and belligerent guitar style. So uh, always on the lookout for good vocalists. If any listener out there thinks they can hold up to my playing, please uh, ping me. That's great. Where could somebody listen to something that you've done in the past? Yeah, so I've got a bit of a song library up on my website, which is www.bordo.net. That's B-O-R-D-O-W.net. And um, yeah, there's not the highest quality reproductions of music, but you can listen to a whole bunch of stuff for free up there. Oh, it's great. I, we have no problem promoting blues guitar here. And, you know, if anybody's inclined, my stuff is available on iTunes and Amazon.com and Spotify and all that crazy stuff, too. So, you know, I do take charity donations. There you go. <laughs> well, listen, we only scratched the surface here. And so I'm going to bring you back if I can in about three or four months and, and dive a little deeper. But it was great talking with you. And uh, as you say, you do have a, an incredibly perfect job up there. And I'm glad that you have it. I'm glad you're enjoying it. So thanks for taking the time out today to 
share with our audience a little bit about quantum computing. And uh, it's always a mystery for most folks. Yeah, Steve, always happy to, to jump on with you. It's been a pleasure, very enjoyable conversation. And uh, yeah, just ping me anytime, happy to come back. All right, great. Thanks, Peter. And thank you to our audience for spending another 30 minutes with us today and hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.